This podcast episode is with Michael Tazarian. Michael has played an enormous role in my own spiritual and holistic development over the last seven or eight years. His depth of knowledge and research is second to none in my opinion. I'm not aware of anybody alive today at least who has done the amount of research that Michael Tazarian has done for his work. I was privileged to have him on Project Sovereign. Please um, subscribe to the YouTube channel and leave a review on, on any podcast platform. That would really help. For this one, we did audio only because the internet was a bit shaky, so I apologise for that. Enjoy the podcast. There is a lot of information here. For the last seven or eight years, uh, so thank you for your superb work and, and thank you for coming on to Project Sovereign to talk with me. Oh, you're most welcome, Alex. Thanks for the invitation, mate. Always good to talk to somebody who knows what they're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> Michael, I'm, I'm sure this has been covered elsewhere. Um, you've been in the public eye for around 20 years now, but I'd imagine this work has consumed the majority of your life, particularly with the depth of the research that you've done. What originally led you down the path of, of you know, the work that you're doing in the first place? Oh, um, I've never known a time when it was any other way, really, right? Except that things were gradual. Back in the 70s, if you have to deal with specifics, then it's more, I got, I got interested in uh, subversive symbolism as it, as it might appear, you know, in subliminal advertising. That was kind of one of the big launch points. Um, and uh, nobody was the slightest bit interested, you know, in, in, in following me in that research. So it was kind of a, something you had to commit to on your own. Mm-hmm. And that was good. That was a good discipline. You know, kids should not just necessarily be into things that everybody else is, you know, finding, you know, trendy, you know, skateboards, playing marbles, whatever, you know, this was, this was something that was already going to take me in a direction. It was a lonely kind of road, you know, but then a mm-hmm. pivotal thing happened in the last year of, of school, maybe last late seventies, whatever, you know, I came across, um, a book that really changed my life. It was a book of art by the very famous Irish author, Jim Fitzpatrick. And it was full of Irish mm-hmm. legends, beautiful illustrations. Uh, he was also a heavy metal, uh, you know, designer and stuff. He was real famous in his own right. Really mega person, you know. And, and then I read, I read the text and that got me really into Irish mythology, you know, uh, mm-hmm. and that, that was huge. That was huge as well. So those are the two things I look at as still being relevant to what I do today. Um, there, there was a general interest in other things, but nothing that really coalesced. It would have been those two events, getting interested in subliminal uh, manipulation, you know, and then getting into Irish mythology. Those have to be key areas, really. Mm-hmm. Sure, sure. I, I remember listening to some of your stuff, I think it was on the on the Unslaved podcast with Ralph Ellis, speaking about... Um, the, the, the ginger-haired pharaohs and everything, and that was one of the first things that actually switched me on to a completely different history, uh, you know, to the one that we've been told. I had I had Ralph Ellis on the program about a couple of months ago, Whoa. and he actually believes that the um, the ginger hair, the, the gene of the ginger hair, come from Egypt to Ireland rather than that. What your work says was uh, yeah. Ireland over to Egypt. Um, but have you got any more thoughts on that? Good point. Good point. Yeah, he's not wrong, right? He's not wrong. Anyone, L.A. Waddell, people of great eminence, anyone who uh, thinks that, right, is not wholly incorrect. It's just that they're leaving out, you know, a more primordial, ancient traversal 
right, from the northwest mm -hmm. into the east. And what can you do? You know what I mean? Uh, they should know better. They should have read the, the work that I've read. Ignatius mm -hmm. Donnelly, Anna Wilkes, yeah. Cummins Beaumont, Connor McDarry. Those are the ones I sort of do homage to in my book. But the evidence is obvious, for goodness sake. Uh, Professor Tom, one of the greatest archaeologists that ever lived, you know, I mean, top-line academics have actually shown mm -hmm. evidence that supports my thesis. And if people mm -hmm. go to the Irish Origins website, I've presented it all there, you know. So, yeah, these are new ideas, in a way, for the modern era, you know, 21st century, whatever. So, yeah, I, mm -hmm. I don't hold my breath waiting for anybody. You know, I know what I know, and uh, <laughs> I can back it up. But I, I'm not big, I'm not holding my breath waiting for the world to get it or anything like that, you know. Yeah, yeah. One of the things that stands out with your work, Michael, is the psychological and philosophical outlook on everything, rather than just, you know, falling into the conspiracy realm. There's a lot of, it's a lot deeper than that. It's a lot to do with why is it happening and why are the crowd being led down that path. Um, you've you've spoke quite compre comprehensively. I've, I did a, a summary of your world in your head um, article that you mm. did. I did a summary on YouTube of that. Um, could you just touch on briefly, um, like the work of Carl Jung and Sigmund Freud? What what impact have those guys had um, on your work? It's enormous. Obviously, uh, I'm one of the only people in this so-called movement that ever dealt with psychology. People have a completely wrong idea of it, um, and they. Mm shy away from it. Now, of course, Freud wins, doesn't he? Because if you shy away from a subject, coming up with all sorts of intellectual uh, stupid uh, reasons why you don't like it, he kind of wins because he knows that the reason you don't like it is because it's psychological. It's about you. So it's mm -hmm. one, one finger pointing there and three fingers pointing back. So I, I kind of got threatened by that myself in the beginning, but then I got to like it. Yes, I read more and more books and got familiar with that dynamic. That, uh, you know, the man who's raging, I don't love my mother, what are you talking about? Kill the man who says that, <laughs> falls right into Freud. Well, I think we've got the point here, because right? why would you lose the bat? Why would you suddenly lose your, you know, and I've seen this. I've actually seen it uh, 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 right in front of you. The irateness falls into Freud's trap, because if, if you weren't, if this wasn't a syndrome, then you wouldn't lose any sleep over it. And you wouldn't, uh, and also the avoidance, you wouldn't avoid it. So people's avoidance of something that should just be a straight conversation, a straight interest, you know, proves the point. And so then I realized, uh, slowly I realized, I kind of was uh, led in a direction. There's many stages to that, because I didn't know anything about psychology until about 1991 when I started picking it up more and studying it, you know, in, in book form and everything. And I got jobs in bookstores, so the books were there, they're available. I would use my store discount and you know start buying these books and, and start to read them earnestly. And actually, I was doing film school at the time, so it wasn't even that much of a legitimate interest in psychology. It was to analyze film, you see, and some of the major film genres, as you probably know, like the Alfred Hitchcock era and the film noir and what, mm. what have you, and even gothic horror, require a psychological understanding. All the critics do. So it's not, I didn't open up yeah. any, Yeah. my God, I didn't open up any new fields there. Mm. You know, and do you know, you know Otto Rank. Oh yeah. Um, what I like about Otto Rank was the, the 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 question where he he, he sort of questioned the le legitimacy of of psychotherapy in general. Is it is it worthwhile? Uh, and why were people actually doing it? 
Do, do you revere his work as, to the level of Sigmund Freud? Because I know he was in his secretary at the time, wasn't he? Yeah, he was for 22 years or something like that. So, the, so that mm. tells you the man knew what he was talking about. And I think that he, like John Paul Sartre and others, I think their arguments are very, very important. But I, I still don't put them on the level of Freud. You know, in my own personal thinking, I haven't done that because that would mm. mean throwing Freud out. And that's mm. not, not, not a good idea. There's a lot of forces in the world right now, especially world feminism, that would just love you <laughs> to do that. So mm. coming at things from a more of a masculine point of view, I don't think it's a very good idea to throw out Freud, Jung or Rank. What we got to do is find the harmony, the right place to approach them, which is a sort of a non-partisan, you know, looking for the truth. Because if you throw Freud out, then you throw Kristeva out, Julia Kristeva, who took, who was a feminist, mm. but took was a little bit oddball feminist who took Freud's work into an area that scared her and scared the rest of the feminists. But you wouldn't even get to that aspect without the Freud. So Jesus, if Freud, you cannot. You cannot love the hate the man. Our future depends on not throwing thinkers like that out. Because if we do, we come under a different kind of mind control, one that suits women in our world, uh, and the duplicitous women, I mean, feminized women, enormously. And there's very few bastions against that onslaught. And Freud is one of them, as is Jung and, and other disciplines as well. So by no means can men afford... And masculine thinking women, oh my goodness, no, never, never, never should that happen. And Otto Rank is in there, mm -hmm. necessary critic. He's, in there. he's like the guy who comes and says, well, you know, he's like an, a house assessor. You know, you need him, right? He's very, very caustic. He pours some corrosive on some of the worst elements. And uh, he's not the only one. There's a whole list of people like that, right? Uh, and we need them mm -hmm. all. Erich Fromm, you know, uh, Karen Hornet, big critics of Freud. They're needed. So the critic is needed, mm. but the, orig the original is needed as well. Yeah, yeah. Did you mention Karen Horney there? Yeah, Karen Horney, yeah, that's right. Yeah, she, she was a big one for the parents, wasn't she? I think she was one of the first ones to say how poor parenting led to right. so much trauma in the in the growing child. Definitely. She had problems with her own daughter, as did Melanie Klein. They had daughters who were mm -hmm. real problems. And certainly, certainly, Karen Horney was... Uh, whoa. Probably, the, probably the, arguably the greatest psychologist who ever lived, you know, wow. uh, and that's a big statement. But, you know, mm. I, I think her therapy is, is extraordinarily important, uh, maybe not as more than Jung or Freud, but, but from a therapeutic point of view, I think it's more dynamic because she addresses the mask, right? Other, other men have stated yeah, yeah. that you wear a mask. Other people have found, uh, come up with a theory, but nobody had ever really dealt with it with clients as expressly as she did. And to me, it's huge, mm. the mask. Oh my God, that, that's absolutely huge. That's what's wrong with the world, you know. Yeah, yeah. One of the things you mentioned in one of the, one of your articles was that the towards the end of the nineteenth and early twentieth century was was a period where the psyche was beginning to try and understand itself again. Do, could you like expand on that? Excellent. I mean, that's a, just a brilliant question. If everybody asked me questions like that, it would be absolutely. Wonderful to do this work. Yeah, I mean, that, well, that's huge. That's absolutely huge. And you couldn't understand that you know, statement that I made unless you've got your Julian James online, your Emmanuel Velikovsky's, and also the, just the history of trauma. See, that doesn't make any sense. Uh, why so late in the day would the psyche sort of invert? And you're right, it's world. And, you know, do you know how long I took waiting to even you know, get that article together to express that kind of thing. It's been on the shelf for the best part of 20 years. But yeah, yeah finally I got to express it this year. And that is, uh, 
it ties into my work on Atlantis and everything. But the simple, uh, the simple answer is just simply yes. So damaged was the psyche of man, right, the psyche of humankind, that it couldn't even address its own wounds. It, it patched them up in a sort of a Frankensteinian way, you know, down through the centuries, and it's just let them fester. But slowly, 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 a point came where, you know, the plaster could be torn off and we could examine the wound underneath to see, you know, how bad are things, you know, and things are bad. But, yeah, mm. what, I, what, what other people would call the advent of psychoanalysis, I definitely see as, you know, in the historical context as a moment in which the pain of the traumas that are all, you know, harbored in the right brain, they're harbored even in the cells of our body. This whole thing is an amazing study, right? The parasympathetic system has come online. Yeah. Many other def- In fact, the split brain, everything, everything about our being, including the split brain, has come on as a sort of a, a mitigator to uh, mollify and, and, and uh, quell, you know, this agonizing trauma that happened because of catastrophism years ago. Right now, mm. yeah, at one level of looking at modernity, it's good, because, just on one, on one level. You know, uh, things can go really, really wrong. The wheel can come off again. But right by the time that Freud was living, that's what I feel is now. It's not that Freud discovered something. It's that the psyche was calling itself, saying, who am I? Um, You know, it's like defreezing from a freezing Mm -hmm. cold Arctic winter, you know. And you you, you say, I think I'm defrosted now. Yeah, thanks. You know, the coffee's been, you know, (laughs) I feel warm. I feel good. Maybe now I can turn to face the great trauma. So what mm. trauma is like on an individual person coming out of a car wreck, coming out of you know war, PTSD. I think the whole of the race has suffered PTSD in a most extraordinarily deep way. But signs are, you know, and then there's all these forces that want to sabotage this act of introversion and, and investigation. There's also forces that deeply want mm. us to be trauma traumatized. I wonder who they are, right? Yes, who? So you know, they want to keep us in a traumatized situation. So we're easy to control. Yeah, yeah. Mm, so, so you think that all stems from like some ancestral trauma? I know you wrote about that in in previous works sure. of yours. Yeah. You, would you consider that the 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 flood? I know not the flood of the Bible, but would you consider that a flood or fire or combination? Depending on different climes, you know, different countries, different nations experienced it differently. Some did around the Mediterranean. Water was a key thing. In, in other areas, fire. In other areas, it was a tor- a torrent. A cataclysm of unimaginable scale. This would be more up in mm. Scotland, Iceland, Greenland, and the Arctic. Right. It was all all of the above. That's why it's wrecked. What we call snow and ice, you know, and fjords. Mm. Oh my goodness, it's, it's it's a joke. It's like a traveler's guide version. Take another look, you know, at the fjords. Uh, it's good, you know, uh, and top geologists have written on this, but who cares? You know, because there's the trauma. Right. So mm-hmm. if you have a car wreck, you, you always avoid the road on which you had that car wreck. You know, you, you just take another road, even if it's twice as long. Well, that's what humankind has done. They can't face, even though it's written in stone, you know, up in the Arctic and, and, and it's written in the uh, north of Scotland. Uh, the, the wreckage and the damage, you know, these erratic boulders and you know, we get into the whole geology of it. Yeah, but unfortunately, we're dealing with cognitive dissonance, the trauma of the cataclysm in the northwest destroyed an entire civilization that they call Hyperborea, you know, or Ultima Tula, yeah, yeah. or Arctos, Polaris, there's a million names for the Arctic homeland is another one, you know. So, yeah, it, it's very fresh in our minds still on a collective level. Yeah, yeah. So would you link, like, <clears throat> shamanic 
type thinking and shamanic work to psychoanalysis. Would you consider them similar things? Yeah. Yeah, because the old shamanism, you know, which included herbalism and geomancy mm. and extreme, uh, extreme attention to nature. Yes, it's very similar because it's all about healing. You can see the connections between those two at the moment that you deal with cataclysm. If you're, if you're in the cataclysm, then it's no problem seeing that we have our modern form of healing modality, and then the shaman had their own, you know. And I kind of personally a little bit like the shamanic aspect because it gave a kick up the arse. You know, today anybody can go and you know, sit down <laughs> and completely degenerate and fake and false as they can and, 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 and call up a psychologist. Yeah, but the shaman, then, you know, they tear you to pieces. They throw you into the snake pit and go, see, yeah. how, that, see how you like that, mate, you know. They were much more stringent and strict. We have it all too easy mm. in our culture, you know. Oh, we do, we do. Let's talk a little bit about the feminization of men, mate. What do you think that that's occurring? Do you think that's natural? Or do you think that what's going on is completely arranged? It's, it's strange. It has been arranged, obviously. A lot of this has been co-opted. But there is a natural thread to it as well. I have programs coming out that will go into that more. Uh, the natural aspect would be that there are just absolute differences between the masculine and the feminine. And you could go back to the Paleolithic and you'd see them. You know, the Star Trek and all have done these kind of funny ones where they, they show this, you know. But it's actually, it's actually quite true. There are such differences between men and women, like, you know, those who want to be hunter-gatherers and those who want to be settled. There's one right there. And then when you are settled, yeah. there's, there's even more, you know, uh, 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 weirdness about how the women want to live uh, and how a gynocracy forms. And how they don't want to be fighting the animals anymore, and, and you know, and they, they they start even forgetting about those kinds of things where the man cannot afford to forget, uh, you know, and all of that. So right from the off, there are amazing differences. And so imagine you were living back then, and you had this vision as a shaman, and you just sort of projected into the future. I wonder what it's going to be like with gender dynamics. You pretty much get it right. Mm -hmm. Here we are, you know. So in one way, you know, and, and the fact that women give birth, and and therefore they have to be settled, and they're the ones who know who they had sex with, right? Whereas the man's thinking, mm. it's the gods, my ancestors have created my son, my child. <laughs> and the woman all along knows, ah, ha, ha. let them keep thinking that for a couple of thousand years, right? So deception is much more involved with women. A woman will always say it's necessity, that's the feminist jive. An honest mm. woman would say, no, a lie is a lie is a lie is a lie. How can we turn around and claim that the men are this and that and the other when we don't even, uh, don't even accept even one blame to ourselves? That, that's not racial, that's not equality, that's not... Nothing. That's just lying. That's moral turpitude. So the people who read my work who are the good masculine women, they say, got it. Absolutely brilliant analysis. Explains a lot. Women lied about paternity to men. And therefore, this is the, 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 that was the original sin that then, you know, got covered up. It's there in mythology, you know, and the evil witch. And it's sort of like, you know, the Snow White and Seven Dwarves and the evil witch and the evil auntie or the evil grandmother, you know. Uh, on the witches, like in the case of you know, like a Shakespeare and sort of witches around the cauldron, there's an incredible story there that I or, you know, bring to bear in my work about that. So some of it is natural, just based on natural differences and natural proclivities and the way you know, people, man and woman both responded to their environment. And then as we move down toward the 20th century, there's, there's another hand moves in. You know, as women became more uh, standing up for their rights, became more socialistic, basically it's just a euphemism for man-hating, extreme man-hate started to manifest. Yeah. And by the time you get up to the big cosmopolitan magazines and the whole New York scene and you know the different waves of feminism, then, and we get to where we are now, uh, it's a criminal syndicate ruling the minds mm -hmm. of women. 
deeply ruling the minds of women. A lot of men are waking up, which I'm glad to see, but the women are still very yes. much uh, under the under the spell. Mm-hmm. And and uh, Gustave Le Bon wrote, wrote heavily about crowd psychology. What impact do you think that's having on well feminism, but in particular that the, the far left at the moment are just completely out of control? How important is that? Gustave Le Bon's work with, with crowd psychology and what's going on in the world at the moment, do you think? It's absolutely huge because, you know, Hitler, that was his favourite book, meaning that mm. dictators read him. Why, why doesn't everybody else? If you want to be free of dictatorship and tyranny, it not only involves the psychology we've been talking about, uh, a genuine interest in men like Freud and others, and it also definitely deals with crowd psychology because Freud had read that book and Freud was so moved by Gustave Le Bon's work that Freud's last book, which is called Civilization and Its Discontents, sort of harps on the same themes. He also got it from Oswald Spangler, the great historian. Uh, this was kind of going, it became vogue at the time. There's a couple of people writing intelligently on mass psychology. Uh, I could name other books, you know, but uh, Gustave Le Bon is the number one. He wrote a thing mm-hmm. called The Psychology of Socialism. It's a masterpiece. Uh, you know, yeah. then he wrote The Crowd, the book you're talking about. So mm-hmm. it's, it's enormous because... As we get more and more nihilistic, right, as the crowd, the socialist, socialism is a kind of nihilism, mm. right? And as the world or the women or whoever, you get more and more nihilistic, what does that really mean, right? It really means that they've run out of kicks, run out of thrills, run out of champagne. Right? In other words, by the time somebody's about 30, you know, take a typical woman, right? That woman has partied and whored and, and, and just lived in a, in, a, in a sensational bubble for most of that time mm. with man being the, you know, not, not only a house slave, but a, a person who facilitates, who provides the cushions, who provides the electricity, who provides the products and the commodities that just take this extremely hedonistic class or species or whatever, in gender, whatever they are, and just plies them with pleasure from morning till night. So mm. as Freud said, then you may be grown up, but you have not left the pleasure principle. In fact, the cities today are basically the pleasure principle in stone. You know, all the TV channels and magazines and all the bullshit of it, right? So this extremely narcissistic group of people, namely women, have uh, dominated our society now and calling the shots. And the man is just still mostly a blinkered eunuch, right? A sort of castrati that just putters about Maybe maybe has the image, external image of a male, you know, beefed up and six pack and all the yeah, all, yeah, all, yeah. all the cliche Hollywood shit. But underneath he's puff pastry. And most women, most men, if you push them, that's exactly you know they're feminine in here. They're feminine in their minds. It's not it's not bad to be feminine, but it is bad to be ultra feminine where you lose your masculinity. Okay, so then what mm. happens to a twenty something, thirty something woman who's exhausted all her hedonistic appetites? That person is so va- va- you know, vacant, so gutted and emaciated, and uh, you know, so utterly uh, eviscerated as a human being, as a being, because they've just glutted themselves with pleasures. Where do, where's the last high? So using Gustave Le Bon as you know, the philosopher, so to speak, I see that the crowd is the last kick. All the kicks are dead. You're burned out, you're jaded, you're bored. So the emptier that you are, the more that you gravitate, probably somewhat unconsciously, toward the last kick, which is the sort of collective orgasm provided by the crowd. So the crowd is top-heavy with women, right? Probably always has been, but certainly is now. 
and it's em- mm. and they're empty. They're empty-headed and they're empty emotional. All the all the other gigs of endless sex and breeding your child ever younger. See, that's why there's uh, women are breeding younger and younger and younger. It's not because they have an interest in children. It's another kick. It's another look at me. It's all born out of narcissism. Yeah. You see, mm. but that mm. even that has exhausted itself because they don't know how to raise their children and sport. Just like having a pup, then you just throw it on the freeway. Go, I'm sick of that. That's, the crimes are happening right in front of our faces and nobody's even addressing it, right? But I'll, I'll, I'll address it, right? So the thing is that these women now have become so pathologically bored and pathologically narcissistic and shallow and empty that the last gig for them is what we see in the streets today. We call it socialism or, you know, social justice warriors. That's a never been more abused term. It's just a bunch of empty, <laughs> vapid people trying to cluster so that the, whatever spark they can get of this high, again, this thrill, you know, and they are getting it, courtesy of politics. They are getting it temporarily, but even that will fade away and then we'll be in a, a nihilistic nightmare very, very soon. Mm. Yeah. Um, uh, so I sometimes sit in, I consider myself, um, how, how do I do my bit to make this better? And then I sit there and go, well, it's not up to me to make it better. I've just got to work on myself and in, individuate, if you like. What would you suggest to the, the to the person like myself who's done years of study now, nothing like yourself, but years of study. I spend most of my day reading and, and making notes and whatever else and creating content for people. What would you say to us to make our surroundings better? Keep on doing that like I've done. I mean, that's all you can do, right? Uh, just because I'm a bit more known and all, you know, and that, and I really couldn't even give a shit about that. If I had my life over again, I would have done it in a completely different way. But yeah. again, if you want to go towards, you know, podcasting, and uh, that's really good, and even making films and, you know, going into deep. But see, all the, all the notes that you're taking, see, can be a script tomorrow, or say a series. Say you start working with other guys on a series and they run out of ideas, you know. You can, you can you, if you've been making notes for years, like I've seen, I've kept meticulous notes. I can now, at a drop of a hat, you know, create a 10-part te- series, say just on yeah, yeah. female psychology alone, or, you know, pick whatever subject, catastrophism, mm. right? I can do yeah. that. So it's not a waste. So I would just say continue mm. that. Per- stay the fuck away from people. That would be another, you know, recommendation <laughs> of mine because they're yeah. toxic. Yeah, there's a lot mm-hmm. of problems right now. Uh, always, to stay sane, you stay close to the masters of the past. You know, Hegel, yes, the Schellings, yes. the Freuds, the, all the people that I name in my work. Mm. Stay close to their work. What do you think of Heidegger, his authenticity work? Yeah, he's probably the greatest philosopher who ever lived, obviously, because he overthrew all the other traditions. I've still got a lot more work to do mm. on Heidegger. You know, there's different things coming out. I just did... This month I did two on Heidegger, lengthy uh, things on existentialism and nothingness. So yeah, he's he's the number one guy, and he answered uh, philosophical problems that nobody else was mm. really talking about. Uh, to tell you the truth, you know, um, there were a few other forebears of his. I'm sure he even drew upon them. Otto Rank being mm. one of them. My suspicions is that Otto Rank played a big role, and others like Henri Bergson in France and. Uh, you know, uh, Brentano. So it's not that Heidegger didn't have pre-cusers. Soren Kierkegaard would have been one of them, only the difference there is that Kierkegaard yeah. was a Christian and Heidegger was not. So it's not that Heidegger didn't have uh, pre-cusers. Uh, but by God, that still doesn't mean that anything could reach the level of his insight. So, yeah, pre, you know, forebears you may have had, but my God, their thinking wasn't like his mm. by any shape no, or form. No. Yeah, probably merely Ponty in France, who was a follower of Heidegger, he'd be the next one, I would say, that'd be close 
plus Merle yeah. Ponty and Heidegger, and that, Heidegger and Merle Ponty, that's, that's it. And if you could just study their work alone, my God, enlightenment would, would come to you, you know? Mm. Yeah, I, I remember you saying before that, uh, I can't remember where you said it, but it was something along the lines of, I know my limitations as a human being, and I need to keep as close to these people as I can, because I'm not a genius, but these people are geniuses, so I need to surround myself with these people's work. And that sort of stuck with me. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah, I, that, I had to that, work it out the hard way. Living yeah. in America, you know, yeah, it was a terrible experience. Uh, and uh, I'd already been studying, you know, the greatest thinker, there's two thinkers before Heidegger that Heidegger relies on the most, and that was Friedrich Holderlin, the German poet, and uh, yeah. Rainer Maria Rilke, right, the poet. Uh, and I'd already been aware of their work, right? You know, in the like reading in the dark. I mean, not get, but just loving it purely from a sensational, uh, you know, and uh, that kind of point of view. Just loving it, uh, and then came across the philosophical, you know, component of their of their poetry. Their poetry is one thing, and then you know, I didn't know that Heidegger until I'd read Heidegger. That oh my God, he's explaining what these guys. He's influenced by them, mm -hmm. and he's explaining in a philosophical idiom what they're saying in yeah. poetry. So that was a really positive experience. Um, but I've been reading them in the 80s. Uh, I've been reading Rilke, trying to tease, tease out what he was talking about, you know. So, yeah, again, I was doing that already. But then by the time that I got to reading Heidegger himself, that was like 91, it was what you just said then became, and this was included Ayn Rand and Gustav Le Bon and a lot of mm -hmm. other people, but it really became a dictum where I wouldn't even talk to people. You know, I'd put my Walkman on in the, in the hours before work. I'd go to a sandwich shop, sit there. You know, maybe I'd have a chat with a guy if it wasn't too busy and, uh, you know, and sit there and read for just a little hour, try to preserve a little hour, and then the lunch break and then afterwards, you know. So I just shut myself off and really hung up the phone, didn't, didn't go to parties, didn't, didn't have anything to do with people. You know, uh, I tried to make every single minute of my time because uh, uh, I, I just realized how much time had been lost in the streets of Belfast. I, I realized that my life there and the troubles you know, had, had killed so much time, so much valuable time. So when I got to the States, you know, it was hunkered down. It was really like a, a crash course I gave myself, you know, uh, not, not, a, not in a panic mode, but almost like in an urgency. There was, I would call it urgency, not panic, but urgency. And that urgency, you know, it did me well. I'm glad, I, never, I don't look back regretfully. Uh, it was the right mm. thing to do. How else could you get through? I've read the collected works of Carl Jung no less than five times. I've read all the works mm. of L.A. Waddell, Eustace Mullins, all the other psychologists that exist. You know, I really do know these subjects. How else could you even do that time-wise if you're working a full-time job, which I did, you know? The, life will eat you alive. Life will eat you alive. So the pursuit of knowledge, mm. you know, uh, you have to then shut off the phone and you have to tell people, you know, you're not going to come to their stupid barbecues and all, you know, and, and you really have to do study. I was, I was on holidays, technically, and I never even saw the places that I was in. I had a crate of books dragged through the airports with me, you know, there's particular times when that happened, where I wasn't even able to enjoy or savor a proper holiday on the continent or, you know, wherever else we had gone, even in America, because of the studies I was doing. You're going to read the collected works of Gerald Massey? I'm maybe sitting there, but I'm not there. I'm, I'm somewhere else. I'm in ancient Egypt now, you know, and I don't regret it. Yeah. Do you think that suffering holds the key to, to like mental liberation? So do you yeah. think it holds the key? Like, 
you know, because the society at the moment, as you say, there is like hedonistic at the moment. Everyone just wants to feel happy and uh, electrically buzzing all the time. Do you think running towards suffering and actively welcoming it is is where actually the key to enlightenment is? Yeah, as long as you include your attitude toward suffering. See, see, see. Other people have said it, like Schopenhauer, that you know, life is meaningless without suffering, and that's true to a point. But suffering is in the world. People do suffer, and they're going to suffer some more than others. What really counts, and this was brought up by C.S. Lewis in his work, I don't know if it was the screw tape letters or something else, uh, that it's your attitude toward the suffering. Somebody can suffer quite unbearably and then come out and walk the streets like a fucking robot, like they haven't changed at all. I've actually witnessed this yeah. myself. And there's somebody who might just, you know, have a little sort of temporary moment of, of suffering, and it can radically change their whole lives forever. Mm. You know, so again, it's, it's a matter of degree. Uh, but yeah, I would say absolutely right. You know, the, the Schopenhauer statement is very, very true. And of course, it happens on a social level as well. What we're seeing right now is a little bit of the dark night of the soul for a whole continent or a whole nation, yeah. you know? Oh, yeah. Uh, you know. So that, that can be a catalyst to awakening. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Let's talk a little bit about Gnosticism, Michael. I know you cover that quite a lot, and you tend to have a completely different outlook compared to if i mean if i put gnosticism in on google now for example all you get is telling everybody how great gnosticism is you tend to have a different outlook on that don't you yeah yeah uh, it's sad that that's the way because before the internet it wasn't there was lots of fantastic gnostic books there were gnostic uh, societies right I, I nearly joined one myself before i knew better this would be in uh, mm. santa this would be more a palo alto area Look, and they're decent people, right? They're all, they're all, uh, a great many of them are completely misguided. You know, mm. I'm talking about a study I've done for the best part of 30 years. It was one of the ones that I was doing back in the 80s. I read all the Dead Sea Scrolls people, I mean, all of them, right? Um, I know the best ones, Herschel Shanks and Barbara Thiering and Hans Jonas and Gillis Crispel. You know, I mm. went into town on that shit, right? Uh, <laughs> And then I started to wean myself off of it, you know. But but to find out why. Oh, Stefan Holler would be another one. You talked about Jung mm -hmm. earlier, right? So I went through all of this stuff, and I, 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 I savored from it the best that was in there, right? But then I started to notice inconsistencies. It's a long story. won't go into it. But and then that led me to realize that, oh, my God, they've mixed this all up with hermeticism. And then I trained mm -hmm. myself, not being a very high IQ person and not being intelligent. I trained myself you know, more mechanically to work out where's this coming from or where's that coming from. And then slowly, you know, if you watch enough movies and documentaries on it and read enough books on it, because there are really good movies on it as well, actually, then you start to get what went on. That at, some, at several points in history, right back in the Renaissance, at the Troubadour period of the 11th century, and then moving up into the, you know, different eras closer to our time, there was a little bit of sleight of hand and Gnosticism, realizing that it was empty and weak and false and basically perverse, started to add mixture with elements of a more, more pure traditions. They basically appropriated and stole from other traditions. And so the mix, the mix that you get now that, as you said, looks really wonderful. And, you know, the, the, the Gnostics are it's, it's enormously funded as well. Some of the, See, when we talk about these Davos people and when we talk about these uh, people yeah. in the U.N., 
you know, we're not aware that they're all Gnostics, by the way. That creature, that Schwab, right, is Gnostic. So is Bill Gates. All of them are. They're all, Oprah Winfrey, Eckhart Tolle, the whole nine yards. But we yeah. we just have lost, the, you know, the filter to be. We don't know how to diagnose for it. We don't have the meter anymore. So, but the decoration of the temple of Gnosticism has occurred disingenuously, right? Some Christians are onto that, which I'm glad to see. They kind of know that. And a few others here and there. But really, it hasn't. Re the thing is so powerful. The thing is so utterly wealthy that it is one of the great threats. So whenever I talk about feminism being a threat, Gnosticism is another threat that might lure a lot of people who don't know better. Because they've got a lot of lures. You know, the tarot has been mm -hmm. uh, misappropriated by the Gnostics. They try to use it for themselves, things like that. And a lot of other hermetic principles have been sort of stolen, put in there. And, uh, you know, mixed up so well that you couldn't tell the difference. I'd have this big conversation when I got to America, actually, with a person that I knew who was studying assiduously all of these matters, had been getting into a lot of this content. It was, it was very confused. So I did my best, you know. So it was almost, I always remember that because my first launch point within the first few days of being in America, we, I was suddenly knee-deep in conversation about Gnosticism and stuff. So I, I never, ever forget <laughs> that, you know. I was, I was actually surprised that this person yeah. knew so much about it. And we had some wonderful conversations about the subject and helped me get things straight as well. And uh, by the way, at that time, there was a surfeit of television programs, you know, on Gnosticism. So it was actually really, it really reached a peak around the 91, 92, 93 period. Gnosticism okay. was really in at that time, much more than it is now, actually. Because a lot of it's to do with light, isn't it? And false light, the luciferic light that blinds you and you don't know where you're going. Um, but they use light and the sun in particular as a, as a symbol that's right that's right very much abused and also yeah. the, it's a philosophy of darkness too because if you have light you have to have the opposite so the way that they frame yeah, yeah. that duality now you're getting into the essence of why it's all wrong because there is a dualism and there is, i call it the contrarium at the root of all consciousness and at the root of all reality but the gnostic you know, it's like some guy standing at the back of a conference hall going, what's he saying, what's he saying, I can't hear, I can't hear. And you're just getting little snippets of the truth, right? And then that mm -hmm. guy runs at the back and forms a cult. And everybody goes, dude, you, you, the thing's upside down, the script is upside Didn't you hear what the guy was? Well, it was too far back, I couldn't hear it. Well, that's what happened. There is a bona fide story of the, of the unfolding of, you know, the contrarium and the dualism, the positive disharmony it's called uh, what's it called dialectical monism it's a legitimate philosophy and many of the ancient you know races back in alexandria and all had it and they had a good idea of it the gnostic is a perverse fragmentary wholly insufficient you know and ultimately corrupt retelling of a very very sacred story so but you know i've done what i can mm -hmm. to try and change people around and i think a lot of people are getting it that's good i've seen a lot of positive you know people like yourself getting it and not falling into the trap it is an interesting mm -hmm. study. I always tell people, oh, study the Dead Sea Scrolls, study the Gnostic Gospels, study yeah. the Nag Hammadi Library. For goodness sake, this is an aspect of Christianity, mysticism, Middle Eastern history. By all means, study it, but be very wary getting involved ideologically in it. Mm. Would you consider, you know, like the, the, the white people that are now like putting themselves in fucking robes and stuff and sitting on the you know on the pedestal at the front and you got people kneeling down to them and stuff. Would yeah. you consider that uh, in the same breath as that, uh, as the, the yeah. Gnostic cult. Yeah, from what I've seen, because uh, I was deeply involved, not me, I was deeply involved with people who were into all of that. Like my grandfather was a very, very prominent teacher in LA and throughout the world. He was loosely affiliated with Krishnamurti, who I really like a lot, yeah. Rudolf Steiner. I come from that tradition. And they, they boulderized it. 
all these people in my family and people around, they, 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 they uh, did it for all egoistic, narcissistic reasons to, to fill their empty life. There's no mystery about it, right? They were empty as people. They hadn't done any study. And so they joined the first cult that came along, got into those robes, rolled a few beads, you know, start becoming vegetarians and talking a lot of shit. You know, I'm a vegetarian as well, but the thing <laughs> is that, but you see, I saw what they were doing it for. It's trendy. They were doing it for the trendy version in trying to be yeah. holy, not because of the love of animals, right? They were doing it as holy. Everybody else says, I'm going to do it too. You know, it's, you know, it, it's just nonsense. And the whole thing to me looked like nonsense. And then hidden in the middle of it somewhere, you know, you find some pure stuff, but yeah, it was so bogus, especially the California version of it. You know, multimillionaires, yeah. You go up to an ashram, I was, I was a, not a member, but I was associated with so many of these places, a lot of them in the Bay Area, California, and you drive up to one of them in the hills or whatever, and as you're pulling in, you just see about a million dollars worth, if not more, of cars in the car park. There's no bangers yeah. or you know, junkers. <laughs> it's all super wealthy Bentleys and Cadillacs and Lincoln Continentals and, you know, she-she. And then you walk into the ashram, you know, and I liked it fair enough, you know, quiet place to sit, to meditate, look at the hills, you know, uh, not being a part of it. I'm sure I was even part of some Islamic cults, right? You know, the Naqshbandi Sufi order, <laughs> I, was, I was initiated into that. Hey, yeah. I would go there on the streets of the noisy barrier and sit there on the carpets and just be quiet on my own. They didn't include me. You know, I said, look, I just want to come here, you know, I'm a study of world religion and all that. Well, welcome, brother, no fucking problem. Yeah. You know, they're hoping that you, they'll recruit you later on. But I used to go there. I've been to so many temples and places just to sit and absorb the energy and listen to the Arabic and read what they're talking about, just to get out of the commerciality of America, right? So I've, I've been part yeah. of a lot of different things. But then I would turn and see these other people, you know, who were so stinking uh, false, having dates, cheating on their husbands, cheating on their wives, you know, while they're part of an ashram. I mean, just a whole nine yards. Yeah. I don't even want to get into it. But it was scuzzbacks and they're giving you these false smiles and pats on the back. I don't know. I'm from Belfast, so I have a very strong meter for bullshit. And that's all I ever encountered. With. <laughs> Terrible. Yeah, yeah. I've got a quote here, Michael, from your article uh, in Words We Trust. You say, the words of these charlatans eventually deafen us to our autologue. They hypnotize and slowly goad us into practicing the techniques of self-hypnotism. None of it would be possible without the power and magical influence of words on our minds. So it's not simply about mega success, attainment, prosperity and living like a king. It's not about confidence and thinking positively. That's the great collective fallacy of our age. No, it's simply about hearing someone speak about it. It's your addiction to this that the con men rely upon, and it's what makes them rich. And that was an article from uh, from your article in Words We Trust. Um, I don't think there's much to be expanded on there, but I think it goes hand in hand with what you're saying there, that the the power of the spoken word with from these people and people just get lured into it. Yeah, sounds good. Did I write that? I'm amazed. Came out good. Yeah, exactly, exactly. It's exactly what it is. There's came so out good, yeah. You're that. happy with that, are you? <laughs> yeah, Jesus, yeah. Oh, yeah, <laughs> see, the self-deception is what that's about, right? It's not that there are not great truths, but these men don't have it. They have the, uh, you know, they're like a hand puppets, right, who know how to speak. The sophistry is basically what it is, mm. and it's ruled our world for many thousands of years. So that's just a warning not to get involved in it, you know. Um and that's why I even do take on board a lot of the criticisms of even psychoanalysis because that became pop as well. So, you know, everything that was started well with well-meaning people does get corrupted. That we just have to accept that we're not in a capitalist society. We're in a community. We're in a consumer society. We don't even know what capitalism is yet, as people like Mises and people like Ayn Rand 
I explained it. I mean, you know, we may never be, although the way socialism is going right now, it may be a reaction and, you know, a miracle could happen. But, or, you know, I'm, I'm even praying every night that China falls, Hong Kong pulls the red switch and, oh, my God, our economy smashed. You know, so uh, there, there could be all sorts of silver linings. You know? So, uh, you know, it would be great, wouldn't it, to live in the age in which we see the end of because remember, why did China not, you know, follow Russia's lead? Russia, the, the the big heavy, the big bull, the big bear of communism fell. Oh, China, what do you, what's wrong with you? You you even have more people than Russia. You could have stepped out of socialism and, and communism at any given time. What's your problem? What what, what is this relic? Mm. What is this you know dinosaur still existing in, in in the Eastern world? Can we be done with it now? So you know, in other words, the plug should have been pulled on that a long time ago. It has to happen internally. Or maybe a little help from the capitalists in, in you know in Hong Kong. Maybe it will. That's what I pray for every night. You know, so I think we're still ready to see some wonders happen. You know, right now even on the political phrase. But yeah, it's very very important that uh, people watch out for these soothsayers. You know, these wordsmiths. Very very important that we listen to what they say and and, and don't turn off our own critical apparatus. Mm. Yeah, I agree. Um, you mentioned Ayn Rand a couple of times. Uh, she gets a lot of shit now, doesn't she? Particularly in America, I, I'm aware. Um, from generally from people who have absolutely no understanding of her work at all. You, you mentioned you had a conversation yesterday, I think, with David Whitehead, and you mentioned psychoepistemology. Uh, it might have been with David. It might have been with Keith Knight actually. And you mentioned psychoepistemology. Can you expand on that a little bit? Yeah, psychopistemology. Uh, oh, by the way, I just wanted to say autologue was the term used by Thomas Zaz. He came up with that term yeah. before the self-dialogue. Just wanted to make that clear. That's not my term. And psychopistemology yeah. is not my term either. That is from Ayn Rand and her people. Uh, it's a term Nathaniel Brandon, Leonard Peikoff, Ayn Rand used. And it's a really ugly word, but all it really means is the ability to turn upon yourself and examine yourself, right, which everybody can do, but very few people like to do. And in part of, as part of that self-examination, it's very value. You know, they were trying to put the focus on values. So it's not just the ability to turn and say, what am I thinking? You know, it's like the cat in Red Dwarf. How am I looking? How am I looking now? Right? Every five mm -hmm. minutes, right? But that's in psychopistemological terms, it's how am I thinking? How am I thinking now? What am I thinking about? Right? So you, you, you mm. have this ability, and she just wants you to use it. Because there's so much deception, both from external you know, parties and, and then from inside yourself. You've got to be doing that constant checking, constant checking, constant checking. Not in the mirror, like the cat does, to check his appearance, but in the mirror of your consciousness. And she wanted you to, you know, she wanted children to be aware of this and not think it was a neurotic tendency, but to see it well. So that you can always be analyzing through your reason, because reason is, you know, she didn't say God-given, but obviously it was, it, it's given it's it's the supreme yeah. aspect of consciousness that everyone should mm -hmm. worship and through the reason you're able to then check the content of your being and your mind and that's what psychopistemology oh, of course it, nobody has it anymore they've all let that go and they want the you know they want george soros to tell them you know and if it wasn't him it'd be some other <laughs> demagogue you know everybody wants somebody to tell them what to think and this is uh, psychopistemology it's the total opposite of that it's how you think what you think about and whether you're monitoring your thought in a healthy way mm. That requires responsibility, though, and uh, people don't want to do that, do they? No, they don't, no. No. Do you think Eric Newman said uh, that he, well, he believed that the fear of nature 
is the manifestation of the fear of our psyche. And that's why we are ripping the planet to pieces. Would you agree with that? Totally. And, you know, again, that's another great question, Alex. That's right. I do. Yeah. Because psyche and nature are one. Schelling said that, you know, the, the spirit is visible nature. Nature is, uh, sorry, nature is visible spirit. And the spirit is invisible nature. There's so much wisdom in that. Mm. But translate a step down for people to get it. It just means that your psyche, the deeper psyche, right? Because the outer psyche is mostly society's construction. But way below that is the mm. natural order, you know, a natural law, right? That runs below. And so absolutely. So our fear of nature and the cutting of bushes and trees and shrubs and, and clearing out, which you see in Britain all over the place now, uh, all of that, and you see it in America too, but it, it's, it's really rampant. <laughs> since the 80s in, America, in England, the Ogilvy family, some of these heavy-duty aluminist families. But now everybody's doing it. Every Joe is tarmacking their, their garden, taking away the grass. You know, people have to be observant of this, just to park their stupid car right up against their windows and all this nonsense, right? They're, 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 they're desecrating nature. And that is exactly articulated to this desire to escape their own psyches. It's a really big subject, mm. actually, yeah. Yeah, huge. And you had, uh, for example, Gustav Le Bon again, thought that the collective hive mind was a, uh, a will to return back to the, the womb for, for comforting. Definitely. Yeah, so it's, as I say, absolutely a huge subject. Wilhelm Reich, uh, yeah, Wilhelm Reich, very similar, but he, he actually, I believe, thought that it was to do with the, uh, it was actually psychosomatic. And you see it today, people are so fat and overweight and everything, and it's like the manifestation of the psyche. That's not a physical problem, that's a mental problem. Of course it is. It's part of this dynamic we were just talking about. When you have dissociated from your own being so much, the body will suffer, right? And so the, the armoring takes on as fat, right? A lot of people don't realize that. They look at armoring as being, you know, spasticated muscles. Yeah, it is on one level, but if you read deeply into, you know, the other Reikians, they will tell you that it's clear that blubber is a form of pillowing and armoring. So we see it, we see it in our society. Then the feminists come in and say, but it's now, it's all goddess, the, the, the lies they're telling, right? It's got nothing to do with anything but psychology. And the, and the sad, it's, it's, it's a manifestation of the great, great sadomasochistic master-slave mm -hmm. relationship that you have first and all with your body, then with your children, and then with other people, neighbors, and then society. So what you see at the top is what you see at the bottom and, and vice versa. All, and that's what we have to do. You have to read about what should we be doing. Study the enemy. Study the socialism. Take it apart. Find out. Read Gustave Le Bon and, and many other people. Ayn Rand. I mean, you don't have to go much further than Ayn Rand. That's the, <laughs> that's the crash course in it, right? For goodness sake. So once you've really mastered what they, they're talking about, then crowd consciousness will be transparent. And like I said, the vapid, gross, hedonistic monstrosities that, that are, make up the crowd, these social justice warriors, why are they top-heavy? with people, you know, like that. It's because that's what's going on. They've, come, they've, they've already had their bodies and brains colonized by a kind of meme, right, which is anti-self, anti-individualistic, anti-alpha, anti-heroic. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, so there's no, there's no humor involved in this. This is, this is the sad decline of Western civilization into a big mud pile, you know, and, uh, yeah, what you can do about it is study it. Study the dynamics of it. Don't despair or anything like that. You know, because man will always build another civilization. Uh, these these nitwits are just going down on their own. You know, they don't they don't have the faintest idea what manliness, heroism, and masculinity is, and that will never die. They're going to be perished. Yeah. They're going to die. They're just killing themselves. We'll build again. No problem. Mm. I mean, throughout all of history, we've had civilizations 
rise and fall and whatever. Do you consider the US right now in, in a state of decay in that sense that it, it is actually falling? Yeah, definitely. It's been, see, and, and what I only thing that my message has a different message wrinkle is that uh, it's been, it's been doing that almost since the beginning. You know, we've done podcasts on it. We're going to do some more. Uh, we come at it from different angles. Recently, we did a show on the Puritan conspiracy, right? In the sense that everybody's looking for some Jewish conspiracy and all, and there's a big elephant in the room they haven't seen. And that is that uh, the Puritan Christian conspiracy is already lit the fuse of the decay that you're seeing today. It's a little Mm -hmm. difficult to follow, so we've had to do meticulous, uh, you know, podcasts on it so people get it. But in short, the very thinking of of these Puritans and these pilgrim fathers was already so communized and distorted and murderous, right? You know, like if they did banish a dissenter and that dissenter came to visit a neighbor or just happened to be on the territory, they'd hang, they'd burn the person. They'd arrest them and burn them just for physically walking. On, and they, you know, there's no demarcation, so you could easily be fooled. You couldn't even come and you know, visit one of your relatives after you've been banished from these bloody stupid, you know, Pennsylvania or wherever the hell, in Virginia, you know. So, and that's just a little part of it. And those guys were the first multiculturalists, the first screamers of reform in terms of minorities. They brought in all of this uh, pestilence. And it was already America hadn't even been founded yet. The Civil War hadn't even taken place yet. And already the serpent was in the garden. So, you know, that's just one approach. Then there's others, right, all the way across the line. You can go to Jim Keefe. You can go to, you know, the, the, the people who talk about the federal orgs getting in place and states' rights being, you know, what, uh, minimized. There's a many, many ways to come at it. But my general point mm-hmm. is folks don't think that this is just happening in the last five years. America has been in the state of decay for centuries. You know, the experiment died a long time ago. I have an article on the Michael Desarno website called Constitution Con. If this is new to people, go there, re, you know, read that, and then go go look at our podcast called Feminization of America. That's the one we do all of this analysis of the Puritans. Uh, and it will expand yeah, yeah. people's insights into the nature of the decay, the state of decay. Mm. Yeah, yeah. You mentioned Jim, Jim Keefe there and people like that. Um, to do with conspiracy, I've written an article not long back about like the psychology of conspiracy. I saw that. And how it works, but yeah, it works both ways. Where there's a lot of bullshit out there, an incredible amount of bullshit, um, which sort of people put into one mixing pot and call everybody conspiracy theorists and whatever, just for you know considering something slightly alternative. But also, you get the other side of the coin that people just simply do not want to think about anything other than what's being told them through the uh, television screen. What do you, can, yeah, can you expand on like the, the psychology itself of conspiracy? Do you consider it like, like spiritual work or would you, within a certain context, or do you think it's even further than that? Do you think it's like, important for the, for the human psyche to develop? Definitely. I've always maintained that from the start, that anyone who thinks other than that is still hasn't got it together. A wheel has come off their vehicle, right? They're, 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 they're just going to go into the ditch at some point. And also, don't you see, like Wilhelm Reich said, where, do you think you could plow through all these lies with a heavy-duty cache of chi or prana or energy, whatever you yeah. want to call it, libido? So mm. it's going to impact mm. your life. Mm. You, would, you will exhaust yourself mentally and go insane. Like so many people in this movement have actually gone insane. Right? Literally gone, stopped on the street, grabbed onto a lamppost, and went, I've lo- it's, it's gone, I've lost it. And there were well-meaning people, but they overburned, right, the upper, you know, cognitive centers. They didn't, we weren't grounded. We weren't in their body. You know, a, a lot of New Agers 
make this mistake as well. And, and then you fall into a sort of a Gnostic paradigm in which you're negating your pleasures and you're negating, you know, smelling the roses and all of that. So there's lots of ways to go wrong here. And I've, I've been uh, probably experienced so many people going mad that I've known. Probably more than really? any, anyone in this room. Oh, yeah. It, 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 from the time I was uh, about 14, it started. Right? And by 15, yeah, I started to see the casualty list. And I even knew other people who had said that in the 60s they had experienced friends like this, you know, going boogaloo. But, but they were all taking acid and LSD, right? Uh, yeah, the ones yeah, I knew yeah. had not really taken any drugs too much. It was more they were losing it because they were on the right path, but they, they, they lacked other things. You see, they lacked other grounding or they were disinterested in their bodies and what. And it basically yeah. then damaged their minds. It burned them out. So there's a lot of balances required. It is holy work. I've always presented in my work as that, so my audience at least knows that from the start. So they're not going to you know, listen to Tussauden and then go down the wrong. I'm so like aware of not wanting anybody that listens to me to have that same problem. You know, that I'm always talking mm-hmm. about Wilhelm Reich and Arthur Yanov and emotional processing and, uh, and somatic intelligence. You know, I have to do that. It's almost like a disclaimer because I know how deadly you can just get into your head. You can just get into your left brain. You can just get into your garret and sit there in the attic, you know, uh, uh, going crazy, basically. You know? mm. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Michael, that. Uh... Uh, this might be a, a very broad question. What do you consider freedom to be? Well, it's all attitudinal, right? That's the first place. Mm-hmm. Um, you can go into metaphysical speculations. You can go into, like, we just did something on Kierkegaard, you know, and his concepts of that, that freedom is actually restricted. But then you go to Schelling and Kant who say, no, it's not. Uh, mm-hmm. th- there's a whole conversation one can have about freedom. And then you could say, oh, political, it, it's given to me by some political edifice or my society, right? Uh, yeah, uh, 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 yeah, look at Karl Marx. They all believe that, right? And yet these are the most anti-free people that you could ever imagine. So freedom mm. is like the choice, right? Um, it is one of those basic ontological things. But what, what, what I focus on is the people don't want freedom. They want freedom from freedom, right? This is, uh, you know, Eric Fromm's title. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And uh, this is where the dangers arise, that freedom has been online in front of you, you know, free of charge, easy to access. And yet nobody seems to want it. What they seem to want is the opposite. You know, and this starts on the parental level with the terrible parenting that's going on, has been going on from the dawn of time. This got worse and worse and worse. Like I said, I come from a Steiner tradition, you know, where they don't act like that. Yeah. Uh, and Christian Murdy, where they certainly don't act like that. Um, yeah. uh, you know, so I come from a different tradition. So it's very palpable for me to see the kind of nightmare. And, and a lot of that is crumbling. A lot of the reasons why things are happening in the world right now is because that old status quo of adultism, I've written two books on that subject, right? That has to go. I mean, there's lots of reasons for the things that are happening that people just don't want to face. You know, mm. there's no way that you know parents are going to ever face this because parents are tyrants. Uh, they're di- dictators. Uh, we have it right now in this thing about gender and whether young children should be able to have sex changes and all. And where's the parent in all of this? How does it even get to the platform? If yeah, it's not yeah. the child, it's all the parents doing that goes open this conversation. They're the fat, crazy ones who've so fucked up their children's identity that that's what's about. So I also look for adultism instantly. As soon as I see anything to do, even remotely, right, with child welfare or questions pertaining to children and all, I'm already not looking at the child. I'm looking at the victim that's being, you know, uh, dragged on a chain 
and pushed from here to there by these imbecilic parents that are impervious mm. to change. So when you're mm. impervious to change, then life comes and hits you back. So many of the sociological changes that we're seeing right now is because we've reached the, the nth degree of so much deception and lies and corruption uh, and, and intractable people who will not change their ways even when it's being offered to them the opportunities in the early days, you know, uh, lovingly to change their ways and look at these subjects. They haven't done it. So we're a critical mass now because of that. It's people's ignorance that's bringing mm. this all apart. Mm. Once again, it seems to all boil back down to the, the hatred of self. It's like the, the ego has to cover the, the role of the master at this point, and there is no self, selfhood left. Right. It's just the ego running patterns, repressed emotions, and, and all that shit just playing itself out, fractures in the psyche, playing themselves out. And uh, I suppose this is where empathy comes in, and it's like, as you said there, look at them as a, as a victim sometimes rather than a, you know, a bit of a, a loose cannon. Yeah, the ego is the construct of the society, right? Uh, starting with the parents. Mm. And then the self is something different, right? It's the big mystery uh, that's striving to be heard. And, and then the same, same metaphor we just gave about things reacting, so the self reacts. You see, the, the mistake of the false is that you cannot repress the self. They really thought it could be caged and silenced forever. Big mistake. So there was already a flaw in your evil right from the beginning. That which is organic and intrinsic and eternal, uh, it cannot be, you know, ever hinterlanded, pure, even if you bring the whole world to try and do it, which is what they have done. American society, British society was set up for the self to be totally and utterly banished, and then the men of the self to be banished and censored. Mm. And that's part of the whole ultra-feminization of our society, because all the answers are there. All the answers that we need are actually in the writings of people like Ayn Rand and Karen Horney and Alice Miller. You know, it's all it's all there, but, you know, Melanie Klein, but nobody wants to, even Anna Freud, right? There's so many answers. Yeah. But nobody wants to listen, mm -hmm. you know. Uh, so they're bringing about their own downfall. So you have to then yeah. not get caught up in it. Like when I was in America, you know, amongst all of these false people, I had to, uh, you know, I mean, I'm in the Bay Area amongst those types. I uh, moved out, luckily, but while I was in that environment, I had to, you know, sort of screen myself make myself immune. And the best way to doing that was to recoil. Right? I, I sequestered myself for study purposes, but you're still doing a full day's work every day, five days a week. So I started looking, I studied them. You know, the, my, my attitude was a plutonic one then, is to say, well, I can't do anything to, you know, I'm not a millionaire, I can't just, you know, sign off. So, uh, okay, I'm going to study your sorry asses. I'm going to find out what makes you tick. Of course, there's nothing much mm. back of it anyway after you do that, but nevertheless, it's a good exercise. And, but see, I, I started it years ago in the like eight, late 80s. People are just starting it now. But that's okay. There's always a time and a place. You know, other people are new to this, so they're going to begin this now. And they're going to be frantic, and they're going to say, hey, I'm lonely. You know, my friends don't like me. I, I can't stand them. They can't stand me. What am I doing? I'm falling apart. You know, there's raising mm -hmm. suicides and all of this. Or the doctor wants to stuff me full of, you know, medication, which they're testing. Yeah, lovely, you know. Yeah. So. The way you step back from that is to get okay with your discontent. Realize that there's reasons for discontent. They're perfectly rational reasons. You don't need medication. That's the last thing you need because there's nothing wrong with you. You're responding to what Christian Murray called an abnormal society. That doesn't mean you're broken. No, yeah. the parents are broken. The society is broken. The school teachers are broken. Well, let them break apart. Let them break apart and fall. Something beautiful will, will come of it. I already see even this week that some mainstream newspapers in Britain 
are uh, very much complaining about the lockdown in a really sincere way. It's like the media is suddenly starting to get it now. Donald Trump is out of the way. They don't need to focus on that. So they're going back to normal stories. And even, mm. even, these, even these socialistic journalists still want to drink at the pub and take their kids out to the beach. You know? So it's going to black, it's, all this stuff is going to backfire. Even people that mm. you know, were champions in the last four years, that's because they had to. Right? The editors told them, you keep your job, you're going to do this, that, and the other. And there'll still be a lot of people you know, playing that tune. But there's a lot of people who are not. And I'm already seeing evidence of it where they're going, hey, maybe these anti-vax guys are, are right. <laughs> you see, it's already happened. Yeah. Seen in the Telegraph, the Daily Mail, and others. So, you know, and then Scotland's in a total yeah. mess. Boris Johnson is back tracking on Brexit. Marine Le Pen is getting stronger every day in France. There's a, there's a, uh, a conservative uh, blowback happening even in Sweden, the most docile, feminized country on the fucking planet, let alone yeah. Hungary and other places. Yeah. And so, so, yeah, they pushed too far with their narrative. And mm. it's a narrative that already had broken down. That's why communism fell. Didn't these nitwits get it? That back in 89, 90, and 91, right, first the Berlin Wall comes down about a mm, year or two later, like by, by 92 anyway, Russia was destroyed, right? The whole Soviet socialistic model fell and crashed to its ground. And only the most perverse, the draconian version of it in China was left. What are mm. these socialists thinking? The paradigm in the encyclopedias of the world tells you it doesn't work, even with all the billions behind it and the crowds rushing into the street and breaking windows. The paradigm is busted. So I'm just waiting for the detritus. I've said on day one, you know, in my podcast on Unslaved that actually what you're seeing is the death throes of an ideology that knows it's on its last legs. And this is yeah, like, yeah. you know, the, thrash, the last thrashing around, the last party of smashing chairs and making a big noise. But actually, if you study beneath it, it's because the ground has already been pulled from them and there's nowhere to go but down. And that's, you know, I, that's why uh, that's, I'll hold to that to the end, that, that, that that's true. Yeah, yeah. Once again, though, it all boils down to selfhood, doesn't it? You can't go out to the crowd for the answers to anything, to everything that, you know, resides within, which is where, in my opinion, the main focus of people's lives should be is their own self-development in the real context of the word, not not the bullshit in the personal development industry, but real inner development and selfhood. Because one of the things that you, you, you sort of fall on, you might have been the same, Michael, is like some of the books here, particularly Eastern books, they talk about like transcend transcending the self, whereas Western psychology and philosophy is more making yourself whole, Jungian uh, type self. Did you ever fall down that, like, you know, the transcendence of self and the, and the wholeness of self, if you like? Did you ever have that dichotomy within you? No, but there was a time, and it was about 1986, when I got so deeply involved with Eastern, you know, I'd always been part of it, a lot of Eastern, and then there was special movements that I belonged to, that it, in order to commit to the next step, that would have been mm. where it definitely would have led. But before I got to that step, it was about 1986, that, uh, you know, uh, I saw through the lie, so to speak. So everything I talk about in my work is from personal experience, right? I know exactly what that yeah. is called, uh, you know, so sign, the road of orthodoxy, the road of dogma. Uh, mm. this time, and it was, it was a pretty much an Eastern religion, right, so to speak, uh, which had a huge Western following as well. Then... Uh, so the other the road, you know, the road of Dasein, which is to say, no, something smells wrong. I, I was able to smell a rat, and I followed it up, and I found out it's not good. So I slowly backed off. The, the whole process took a, a little bit longer, but, but right from that point, I, I knew that this is not something I really want to follow. 
You know, it had other things yeah. I, I liked about it, so I, I stuck very loosely, but bit by bit, year by year, as, as, you know, especially then after I came to America, then, you know, it, it, for my longer sojourn, you know, right up to the present mm. day, then it's like, yeah, that was about 1990. Then I started to get it right. But I did it, I did it very much slowly because I was also studying what I was doing. Mm. I was going over the path. I was walking back up and back down. And I wasn't just going, okay, I'm finished with this now. Is there any other others, you know, like some fucking, you know, uh, buffet? I wasn't looking for another path to replace, you know, or one illusion to replace another illusion. I was meticulously studying the subject so that other people who were trapped in that same path, I could easily dialogue with them. It actually happened on numerous occasions. None of them changed one bit, but I certainly shook them up, you know. So I would be able to turn to any of those people, even these, uh, even the leaders of, of, of a group like that. I could, uh, I could have looked them in the eye and had a dialogue with them. So that's what I did differently. I didn't just leave it and move on to the next, you know, uh, sensation. I studied it thoroughly, got to find a lot about it. I could write a book on it, actually. You know, and I, and I even uncovered other previous uh, people who could also shine light on the falsity of this particular path. So you're quite right, a point. But had I not done that, had I not in some way had these second thoughts, I wouldn't have liked to have seen what I would have become. So absolutely, uh, I would have lost my mind. I would have lost my discrimination, you know. And then those techniques that I worked out pretty much on my own, because this is back in the 80s. There wasn't any internet. There wasn't any instructional videos. Yeah, yeah. There was very few books. Uh, there was really nothing except the books that they gave you to indoctrinate you, right? But I worked it up with my own raw matter, just as you said earlier about, you know, it's really about going within. Well, I did that, and I found the uh, secret, left it, honored that intuition, and then I took that set of tools into other areas in the following years when I was maybe critiquing other things like Christianity or Gnosticism. Mm. Mm. In India, you had uh, Sri Ramana Maharshi, who was like a a proper Eastern guru, if you like. And about 500 miles away, you had Sri Aurobindo, who was like, I mean, I've studied quite a lot of his work. Yeah. And completely opposite ends of the spectrum in terms oh, of yeah. like how they live their life. Um, but both could be seen as enlightened. Would you agree with that? Would you say, for example, Ramana Maharshi was not enlightened at all? That's right. I wouldn't believe that. Uh, they think that they are. There's a, okay, so let's put it this way. There's enlightened people, and then there's those who think that they're enlightened. Ramana Maharishi, Swami Vivekananda, you know, Paramahansa mm. Yogananda, all of these characters, in my eyes, were, were deluded utterly. They're not enlightened at all. And, and okay. uh, the, you know, that gets into a big story, right? Whereas Sri Aurobindo, yeah, was, was a properly enlightened, you know, man, because he had, mm. the, like you say, coming from the other end of the spectrum. Uh, by and large, with very few exceptions, all of the Eastern traditions are bogus. And, and I, mean, I mean this even if you go back to where they started, right? They all started in the pre-Vedic period where nobody believed anything that they believed later, right? So the Purunas, the Purushas, the, the Vedas, the Upanishads, they're all false documents, right? They're all appropriated from a much earlier ethos when people were more, the Arya, the high Arya, right? Who thought totally differently. Sri Aurobindo is trying to go back to that, and I'm in favor of that, right? Albert Pike wrote extensively on this. Uh, he, he knew all the five languages of India, and he wrote extensively on the Vedas, yeah. and, and his work is invaluable there. And there's other writers as well, Gerald Massey. There's such an extraordinary scholarship there, right? 
And when you start following that, you, you know, like a Mercia Eliad would be another one that really uh, wrote on this. And then you start to see the pattern. Now I was, I was in one of these paths, you know, and, and believed every, didn't believe, but you know, you're, you're reading and taking it for what it says in its own manuals. Well, yeah, of course. They're writing a story. I mean, where's the contradiction side? And what, what a funny thing happened. One of the, one of the, while I was researching these things, right, and then when the internet finally did come on, I'd already made the changes long before and broken away. But when the internet came on, you know, you know as you do, out of curiosity, the things you were into in the past, go, hey, well, I want to see if that old show or that old program I used to watch is on, if they've got it online. Well, I did this with this path. And sure enough, all the workings out that I'd done was confirmed because I found out there was actually five other paths, all rivaling in India, calling themselves under the same name, all claiming that their master mm. was the original master from the original master, blah, blah. And all of them saying the same thing. I went, oh, my God, I wish I had this 10 years before. Mm. Then, I, as I was looking at this up, right, there was a Sikh website in uh, England. I think it was an English guy since long gone. Uh, I can tell you why. This was a monumental site on Sikhism being as fake as hell as well. That, the, that by the time that the uh, 10th Sikh guru had, you know, ended his career and formed Sikhism, because Sikhism was actually really formed after 10 Sikh masters. The actual order of the Sikhs was quite late in the day. So it was only about 200 years ago. All right. I find out from this website that there was 36 different brands is the only word I can use for Sikhism, right? Where each one of these 10 famous Sikh gurus, you know, if you open the encyclopedias, that's all you get, yeah. the famous 10 Sikh gurus. All, all of us are brought up, you know, in, in those traditions to know about this. Uh, it's, mm-hmm. it's a great history and all the rest of it. Each one of those people had an, a cousin or a, a, a family member who pretended to be the next master. And there's 10 of them. And there was multiple people around them said, he left it to me. No, he left it to me, like some crazy Monty Python skit. And it turned out that by the 10th guru... There was over 36 rivaling cults, all calling them the legitimate Sikhism and the, you know, to be the patriarchs of the movement. So, and it's the same with Christianity and yeah. all the different denominations of Christianity. But I didn't know that in terms of the East. And then I continued assiduously studying. Sadly, that website was removed before I knew how to copy it away or take some information from it. No, it disappeared. But I've remembered it to this day. And so I saw through the bogusness of it. And then I did a deeper study to go back to the origins, the pre-Vedic origins, and boy, God, is that a path. You've got to read some pretty wild mm. people, right, to go back and find, oh, hell, this is where it comes from. They all plagiarized <laughs> the great work of the ancient yeah. Arya and, and chewed it up and mm. mangled it so bad that you can't even recognize the original anymore. Mm. Mm. And, what, uh, and does that got anything in, to link with Atlantis? It has everything to do with if you see Atlantis as being the homeland in the West, the Northwest, you know, yeah. the Arctic homeland is another way to phrase mm-hmm. it. But yeah, Arctos, Polaris, Ultima Tula, Hyperborea, there's a million names for it, yeah. right? Uh, uh, it's in the Bach saga, they've got uh, their equivalent of it. Every, every race talks about it. And the Arya were the displaced ones after that crumbled and fell, uh, again, through cataclysm. Mm-hmm. Sure, what we call the Arya or the Druidic. They, the Scythians, they passed down through the steps of Russia into Turkey, which was called Anatolia. It's a Western country, actually. A lot of people yeah. don't know that. Yeah. And then, you know, into the Hittite Empire and all over Egypt, it, it fled. And then over into India as well. You know, and I've got all that information on the Irish Origins website for people. But 
Yeah, it permeated. Yeah. And then it did flow back. There was a backflow later on in history, also in the AD period, and a lot of historians focus on that. And they're well-meaning, and they're right to a degree. But what they don't understand is the really early prehistoric original movement, which, as I said, has been proven by Professor Tom. I've got the information on the Irish Origins website about that. Absolutely conclusive, irrefutable even to the most skeptical mathematician, that the West was the original homeland cradle of civilization, not the East. Uh, by the way, mm. see these, see these, see these, uh, uh, see these uh, upper Aryan uh, 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 dynasties. Uh, my family comes from one of them. They're only too happy to admit it. They admit it in their artwork, and it's in their traditions. And they used to verbally, before political correctness came to India, anybody from what's known as the Jat level, J-A-T, openly knew that their ancestors came from the Northwest. No doubt about it, no shrouding, no prevarication, no, no bullshit. All the upper classes of India accepted. The Brahmin classes accepted it, and that they are the top class. And even north in the northern Indian yeah. classes, when you go to the highest traditions, they accept it. It was part of their history. It's only through a, a, the usual level of you know, political correctness and shenanigans and lies that and people started to back off that, and it became a taboo subject. You know? But no, come on. And the truth can't be, yeah. you know, faked. No way. Yeah, yeah. And you know, the, the, the Hermitians and the mystical traditions, the divination arts and stuff, would you consider those those going back to, the, you know, the area time, Aryan times as well? Or would yeah. you just think that's more modern? No, no. They all go back to a very early tradition. The Zodiac is pretty much identical wherever you go on the world. Maybe a few changes here and there, but they're very minor. Uh, the Zodiac, as we yeah, know it, yeah. the Temple of Dendera, you know, the Aryans had it. In fact, they had it in what was known as a stellar Zodiac, right? They didn't even really, they acknowledged that there was the signs we're familiar of. But that wasn't their focus. That was You could almost think of that as a secondary Zodiac, right? The mm -hmm. original Zodiac, believe it or not, was what was called the circumpolar region. I've written two books on it, The Trees of Life, although it's called Trees of Life. It's really about this that we're talking about now. And that little zodiac that's up there on the pole, it's called the polar zodiac, right? Of circumpolar mm. stars. That was the original zodiac of the absolute ancient area. Later on, who knows, right? Shifting of the polar axis or just some other, the solar cult taking over. It became the movement of the sun yeah. through the 12. And that's perfectly legitimate. Nothing wrong with it, right? And as a matter of fact, as we're going to be doing on a podcast very soon, a heart of my work on astrology is the 88 constellations. The 12 are just a, a pathetic homogenization. In and around the movement of the sun are over 88 constellations that matter to the ancients, and they knew them all. The Pegasus, you know, and what have you, Ophiuchus. There was a whole bunch more. Uh, mm. Canis Major, right? Uh, yeah. And then you can even break it down to individual stars, but that's, that's going to the extreme. Um, mostly there was 88 constellations floating in and around what's known as the ecliptic. And cults of the world worship them. So today when you see the symbol of the whale or the dolphin, or even the shell, you know, like Botticelli, the Venus coming out of the shell, that's all based on constellations. So the 12 that we know are the famous ones, but ancient cults also, like Native American Indians would worship Orion, right? Or, 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 uh, or, or Spica. Right? Spica turns up mm -hmm. as a stars in Virgo. It turns up in the inauguration of America and the founding of many cities. How many people have ever even heard of that? Uh, and then you can go on. Uh, you know, there's people who have written books on, uh, what's it, Cygnus? You know, 
uh, as a mm-hmm. constellation. Uh, they think they've got a theory there, you know. So there's basically those 88. So when you hear about Jonah being swallowed by the whale or Samson fighting the lion, well, that would be too obvious. That's Leo. But you know what I mean? There's, there's all sorts of um, other constellations turning up. I just can't think of any right now. But, you know, like say the Masons have their beehive. Yeah, well, there's, there is one. Uh, the, the manger that Jesus was put in, you know, the severed head uh, of John the Baptist, mm-hmm. it's all up in the constellations. So to make the, the, the going into detail, there's over eight, there's like 88 famous constellations in the Zodiac. That was the original Zodiac, and it was the one worshipped throughout the whole world uh, before it became homogenized later on. Mm-hmm. Fascinating stuff. Are you going to release a podcast on that? Yes, I've done a lot of work on it. We're coming up this week with one on it. Good. Uh, and yeah. then uh, uh, that will only be like an introduction to sidereal astrology, but uh, sure, the thing is endless. Uh, my whole system yeah. is based in it. Uh, all, all systems of astrology do to a certain extent incorporate mm. what we've just said you know, to a very, very small extent. But uh, the, the, these websites and YouTubes on astrology are pathetic, you know, Oh my God, they're just like the, in, the beginner. This thing is ancient. This thing is absolutely, and many of the symbols, like the unicorn and another symbol, the dolphin, these are the ones that spring to mind. The crown, right? the great chair, Cassiopeia's throne. You wouldn't believe that we are surrounded. Scottish symbolism, Masonic symbolism, African symbolism is all filled with these constellations we've, we've totally forgot. You know, we don't even know mm-hmm. what it is. So yeah, uh, the chained woman. I mean, you one could go on and on. And even in the Bible, you get all these motifs of Daniel in the lands, Dan and all. It's all, it's all from the stars. It's all stellar. So the, 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 the zodiac mm-hmm. has evolved over many years in different forms. And some retained the old form, some had a new form. But by the time you get the 12 signs of the zodiac, it's already late in the day. There's already been much greater study from before that. And then I have an article on the Female Illuminati website, even going deeper into that, called From Heaven to Earth. People should check that out. There's even another story going even back to the dawn of you know, Egyptian culture, where events in the sky also had an impact on how we read the sky, on omens, on superstitions, on signets, amulets, talismans, religion. It is an incredible article. It's not even that long, but it, it gives another spin on you know, celestial events, changing consciousness yeah. and changing the way we see symbols. So it's an endless subject. Yeah, yeah. How important is the merging of uh, Kabbalah, uh, tarot, astrology, um, what have I missed? I've missed oh, one there. As like a, numerology? Yeah, as numerology. A, numerology as like a big holistic system. How important sure. is that to like merge them all? Oh, well, that was my original project in the 90s, right? For, uh, about 90, what, 99 or something like 98, I, got, I, got, I put my first website up, which was this mystery school, you know, that teaches this system. But that had gone back to 1988. You know, the studies of, the primitive study of that, and the dislike of Western astrology, and the dislike of what's called uh, Vedic astrology. Studied both of those and found them inadequate, mm. quite seriously inadequate. Well, what do you do then? You do what Buckminster Fuller said. You say, you've got to develop your own system, mate. Or what William Blake said, you know, you better come up <laughs> with something of your own. And so this laborious yeah. task that sort of, you know, I didn't even want to be, oh, you know, these things pick you. You don't really pick them. So a meticulous, mm. uh, you know, and again, basically the sum result was, yeah, I created a miscellaneous form of, of you know, astrological divination. There's many miscellaneous, like we said, the sidereal, the Vedic, uh, the Western, the tropical, uh, horror, horror mm. astrology. There's, there's, not, there's not that I've done something different. 
there's many versions of divination. But the way I look at it is like this. There's many versions of tea. Right? There's many products of tea. Thai food, yeah. tea tips. But a tea leaf reader isn't bothered with what brand of tea it is when they're reading your tea leaves, right? So I took the same mm-hmm. ideology and said, it doesn't really matter what the astrology system is. You can get caught up in that. And there are people, you know, myself being one of them, that need to do that for technical reasons. But see the general public and the, and the people and the simple idea of getting your fate read? You don't need to know what brand of tea it is. So I, I started working with both of those. The idea that, look, I have to, yeah, technically I've got to, you know, hunker down and, and study astrology to create a new system. But I'm always aware of pulling back from the canvas to say, is it working? Why all this industry if it's not yielding this, the right information? And very quickly, I found that my system does yield. There's a high yield of results and information, the same as you get from all the complex systems, you know, with all their computer programs and fMRI and tables of houses and atlases, compasses, protractors, and all that. I'm getting it that way, way simply. So then I designed this. And one of the other helps to get that, uh, to make the system work was to amalgamate not just one discipline, but all of them, you know, like even sacred geometry too, do we can be plugged into this, but certainly numerology, mm-hmm. Kabbalah, astrology, and tarot. Those were the main ones to say, bring it together. And that gives you even more dynamism, you know, than, yeah. than each yeah. individual subject, no matter how good they may be. They're weakened by the fact that they're not conjoined with the other great divination arcs. And even the great schools yeah. like the golden dawn and all, they, they really didn't nail that properly. So mine is mm-hmm. like a, you know, lifetime attempt. That was my first, uh, first major work in a more of a vocational sense was to do that yeah yeah you see a lot of people falling into these divination arts now and a lot of the the gnostic false light type stuff as well where they don't even scratch the surface to be honest and then they go around selling astrology readings and tarot readings and all that and it's causing more harm than good in my opinion how important is it to actually go into these topics and give them the respect that they actually deserve vastly important it's part of the holy work that we talked about earlier, you know, getting free of all of the different mm-hmm. memes in your head because you've been heavily sublimely programmed. Uh, Jim Keith was right when there's even a lot of electromagnetic poisoning in terms of altering your consciousness. So there are certain um, mm-hmm. detergents that you need to pour on the psyche to clean it. Mm-hmm. And divination, you know, again, again, it's all based on your own attitude toward it, right? But working with yeah. the, those, working with crystals, working with geomancy, sacred geometry, it's all important. These are, yeah. are the bequests of our ancestors to help us cleanse. So that no matter what apocalypse is descending upon us, as now, right, uh, you know, you'd still have sanitizing methodologies, you know, uh, to be able to, you know, purify, you know. And I'm very proud of the first site. It's 20 years old as of last year, maybe this year. You know, so we're 20 years. I think it started... I think, it, I think it actually came around about 98, the first Tarascopes website, actually. But the Mystery School, probably 99 or 2000. So that's 20 years. It's my oldest site, my oldest project. It's still current. It's still got members from everywhere. So I'm really proud of that because, you know, things can fade away. Things can get out of date or jaded or just irrelevant, right? So my first creation is strong. And that, that's really encouraging, you know, for everything I'm doing now. It's not like, oh, that had to fold up to get to this, and like it is with so many other things, you know. But no, from my first creation to the last, they've all been really strong and, and, and sustainable and, and worth their weight in gold, you know. So I'm really proud of that. Mm. 
Yeah, and you should be. I mean, uh, when I spoke to David Whitehead, uh, I said to him, I don't want to be bouncing back up anybody's arse here, but I said that the Unslave website is probably the most content-rich website that I've ever come across and, and, and has served me and anybody who's in the right thinking mind, in my opinion. I can't find anything else on the internet that can come close to that. So I take my hat off to that, and uh, I think you. you should be proud of it. But your work is uh, very good as well. We have Michael, to have you on. We have to have you on as a guest for certain real soon. And what's on there right now is much. a fraction. To. Yeah, and what's on there mm-hmm. is a fraction of what's to come. You know, there's a, the premium has been a little bit on hold, but with guests like yourself, uh, it's top level. You know, uh, people are really doing the real thinking and not looking for another trend to follow. Yeah. 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 And there's so much to go into. Michael, just before. Just before we wrap it up, mate, can you give me an, your opinion on a couple of people? Helena Blavatsky. Yeah, uh, I think in general, I think as a woman, I really like her a lot. I like what she, feminists should be picking her up, you know, but they won't because she was an occultist, right? No, she was a remarkable mm. soul. She would, she would be embodied what I call the masculine principle in a woman, right? So for that, she's like yeah, Ayn Rand in yeah. many ways. Uh, if you get into the, the information, you know, it, it's a little garbled, it's a little convoluted, but that's not her fault. Everybody at that time, from Gurdjieff to Steiner, even Swami yeah. Urbindo, you know, even, even some other well, well-meaning people, it tends to be a little uh, convoluted, let's say, right? But at the same time, mm-hmm. that's made up for by brilliant commentary on the yugas, on the root races, you know. So you have to take it lightly. You know, but there's really, really good information there that helps us expand, mm. you know. And then you move to the Julius Evelas and you can move on to, you know, the uh, Rennie Gwenons and never just focus down on one person because nobody has it right. No one person, right? Well, maybe yeah, I yeah. right? But I'm talking yeah. about more of the older, <laughs> I'm talking about, you know, the, the, the <laughs> other older scholars, right? Nobody has it right because mm. they were all seeking mm. and they all told you that they were seekers. Nobody declaratively told you, well, it's only me, I've got it, you know. So, yeah, I, I like mm. her work a lot. I'm not a Blavatskyite, right, but I certainly would recommend mm. her works, especially Volume 3 of The Secret Doctrine, where she comes down on the mm. Jesuits. Mm. Monumental. Brilliant yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. And obviously she's the Theosophical Society's chucked out quite a few prominent figures as well. You've got Rudolf Steiner. Do you, sure. I know you've mentioned him a few times. Oh, you like yeah. you, you got a lot from Steiner. Yes. He was a good man. He killed himself trying to help humanity. He was very into diet. Uh, so his works on dietary things were very, are very interesting as well, you know, uh, and other aspects yeah. of his work. So I'm very open-minded, you know, and, and yet I never myself, you know, uh, signed on as a cult member, so to speak. You know, I look at him as one of the great, mm-hmm. great geniuses because he remember he was a protege of Goethe, the greatest thinker that's ever been in Europe. Uh, you know, mm. uh, in, in before, you know, and, and, and his other protege was was Friedrich Schelling. So the two young men were his choice protégés, Steiner and Schelling. So they're coming out of a tradition that's second to none in terms of German mysticism and German philosophy. So, of yeah. course, you have to study them. What the hell? Right? These are the finest three intellects, yeah. along with Heidegger and Muriel Ponty, that the world has ever, ever, ever produced. Yeah. Right? It's a no-brainer, yeah. right? Yeah, and last one, mate, because I'm wary of time. We've just done an hour and a half. Uh, last one, Owen Barfield. Oh, you can't come to the bottom of his work either. And by the way, it's it, there's another name. If you have to have a, a name to that triad of Heidegger, Merleau-Ponty, and, uh, and somebody else, 
Well, that somebody else would be, you know, a toss-up between, say, like, like a Gabriel Marcel. But even Owen Barfield would be a perfect, you know, uh, uh, a perfect addition to that team because he mm. is uh, takes up what Heidegger loved so much, which was the old languages. And Barfield is the number one yeah, yeah. brain on that, my God, right? And in a very similar way. And very briefly to explain is that, you see, he, he believed that not even, you know, because people like me talk about symbolism a lot as being real core and real primary. No, that's true. But, but Barfield had something very, very vital that in a way Heidegger did too, and that is your first communal aspect with the world, right? Your first recognition of the world in hard terms is by language. Because after all, don't we name things? Even if I live in a fucking cave, I've still called it cave. Well, why, yeah. right? Yeah. So our language is our first engagement with the world. We hear the birds singing. We hear the apes. Gerald Massey, you went into this in detail. And so we start to name things. So our first actual relationship with being in the world is with language. And it kind of and, and then it develops into poetry and all. And this was central to the Bardic mm -hmm. tradition, the, ga the Gaelic, uh, pre-Gaelic Druidic tradition as well. They've got it too, the same thing. Haiku has it as well. So he would look at that. He brings that to the table so that he realizes that the... But then he added this other thing that became more Heideggerian, and that is, in this naming process, it's not all benign. By the naming of a thing, you also own and control it. You classify it. You pin it to a board. Barfield brought that to the table as well, that there's a dark, negative side of language. We talked earlier about sophistry, right? Well, this is what we're talking about now as well. Again, any usage of language to name, to classify, uh, brings on board science, which has so damaged our world, right? Because then the words yeah. that you're giving to a thing, quark, you know, multiverse, string theory, you know, they're having a meaning. AI, you know, right brain, <laughs> left brain, they're, they're you know, we're, we're into the word now. And that brings on the left brain. And the left brain is the chief distorter of reality we've got, yet it works in words. So Heidegger, Barfield, they bring this, that words are good, they link you to the world, but they can also be bad because you, you're doing something else with them. You are uh, uh, like a predator. You're trying to, you know, stamp like you, 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 you what is it? You, when you brand a cow, right? You're branding the world, and then you want to classify yeah. it, and that's what's called in German gestell or in framing. And so those two scholars, Heidegger and Merleau-Ponty, and, and of course Barfield supremely, were people who were absolutely dreading, you know, this idea that through the word we've cast our net, and we're making reality into something that it isn't. And we're distorting it deeply in a way that it'll become so simulated that we won't even know. It'll become a world of words, and we won't even be in touch with the real thing anymore. So the word was meant to bring the thing to us and say, who are you? What are you? Candlestick, cloud, mountain. But in the, but in the same token, it can also push things away and push them away forever. And that will then cause a major mm -hmm. mental catastrophe. So, oh, my God, Owen Barfield yeah. is absolutely huge, huge. He was an inkling as well, wasn't he, with yeah. C.S. Lewis and Tolkien? But his work is much deeper than C.S. Lewis. I love C.S. Lewis, but Barfield is the greater thinker by far. And he was a theosophist. Mm -hmm. He was into Schelling. He was into Coldridge. Right? Uh, his greatest mentor was Coldridge. But Coldridge was the Englishman who iterated all of Schelling's work without credit. Schelling knew it and said, you know, it doesn't matter. Uh, but Coldridge uh, was a bit of a plagiarist, a great man. But he based his ideas on romantic philosophy of Germany, particularly Schelling. So Barfield, who worshipped Coldridge, also then, you know, gets... The Schelling connection, those three are very much tied. But Barfield acknowledged it and acknowledged theosophy, whereas Coldridge, I don't know, his personality, you know, it's not a very serious thing. It's just that the people thought that Coldridge had come up with the word unconscious. 
right? Because he used it in his work, but actually he was shelling the coin, the, the term, the actual shelling, term yeah. unconscious. Yeah, the philosopher mm. coined that. No doubt about that. And so there's a little bit of a wrangle there, you know, but ultimately that's all unimportant. That's just backstage stuff. The, all of these men mm. were great thinkers, great geniuses. And if we'd have been teaching our kids their work, oh my goodness, you know, we wouldn't even be remotely in the world we're in today. No way. Mm. Yeah. All right, Michael, we'll leave it at that, mate. Thank you for talking to, Thank you. to me. I've really enjoyed speaking, mate. It's been a pleasure. It's always good to have somebody, you know, who asks intelligent questions. So, Alex, great. I recommend your website. Really uh, chuffed and actually a little Thank bit, you. Uh, you know, yeah, impressed by the, definitely impressed by the work you got there, mate. So, we'll have you as a guest soon, you know, as soon as we can. We'll get you on, on Slaved as well. But thanks for today. It's been great. Cheers, mate. All the best. Thank you.